As Trinity Episcopal Midtown family continues conversations surrounding racism, we would like to thank each and every one of you for your contributions to this podcast series. Our goal is not to debate whether or not racism or white privilege exists, but rather simply to share our individual experiences and to work to find ways we can address racism, both personally and professionally. We believe this can be accomplished through the exchange of open, meaningful, and respectful conversations surrounding anti-racism. We believe that collectively and as Christians, we can work proactively toward identifying and opposing practices, structures, and systems that enable racism to flourish and exist in our world. It is our hope that through this work we can achieve a greater understanding of social justice, which is simply allowing all persons equal access to the benefits and freedoms of a society and to also be free from the unequal distribution of its burdens. My name is Russell Little. I'm an attorney here in Houston. I practiced law for more than 36 years in Harris County and the county surrounding it. During that 36 years, I've represented mainly young men, a few young women, both African-American and white. And I've gotten to know Angel over the last year or so. And we have discussed what I saw within the criminal justice system. And Angel asked me if I would talk a little bit about it on this podcast. And I'm very proud to do it. I'm always proud to talk to Angel. And I'm always humbled at her friendship. Within the criminal justice system, I started off as a young attorney naively thinking, and it was in the 70s when I first started, that we had gotten past this racism problem and that now we were all equal under the law. And it took me witnessing day after day in the courtroom, watching the young people come in, the minorities being a majority of the audience, to learn what was really still going on. And in fact, I tell stories mainly, or I tell messages mainly through stories, and please pardon me that that's how I want to tell you about what I've seen. The first one is the way the system seemed to work over the 36 years that I've practiced law. And it always starts with when mainly the young man or young men are pulled over by the police. Sometimes I would get a call late at night by a father when their young man had been pulled over but released to their parents or released. And the father wanted 
me to consult with their young man. These young men were always white. The other example is when the young man was in jail and the family was calling me to deal with his charges. Sometimes these young men were white, but all the African Americans I represented, young men, were always in this situation. They never seemed to get the benefit of a doubt. And the way it always worked is they got pulled over for a bad taillight or speeding or running the stop sign. And then they got their car searched. And then they found a seed or some other problem. And they arrested them and started charging them. And once they got charged and they got taken to the jail, then they were in the system. And the system was like a major grinding gears. That once you got in the system, they couldn't get out. They would be going to court every month, and they were always required to be there on time. And if they were a minute late, they would have their bond threatened by the judge. And they may have their bond raised. Some of these young men's families didn't have the money to pay the raised bonds. Or they would be incarcerated because they were late. And in those cases, they became desperate to make a deal so they could get out of jail or to make a deal so they could get back to work. Because once they were in jail, they always lost their jobs. But the problem was once, the, if they, and they were always pushing to make a deal because of the situation that being arrested and put in jail caused them. But if they made a jail just for probation, for some minor charge, this probation seemed to always, there would be some minor detail that they would break, and they wouldn't get the benefit of a doubt, they wouldn't get a second chance, and so their probation would always be extended, and then extended again, and then the next time, or some or occasionally, even on the first time, they'd have to go to jail. And once they got in jail, the system would get a good hold on them. And they wouldn't be able to escape. And it would just grind them up. And I saw this year after year after year. And I had one case once. And I want to use this as an example where I represented a young African-American man, and we went before the judge because the district attorney had offered us a deal on probation, and I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take it because I didn't... I learned that my young African-American clients, if they got them on probation, then they would be in the system and they'd be destroyed. And I wouldn't agree to it anymore. I was done with it. And I remember the judge asking me why I wouldn't take it. And I asked the judge, look, judge, uh, we need to have, can we go back to your office and talk about this? And he said, fine. And he recessed, recessed court. 
And we went back, and I told the judge what I've just said to you, and that I've seen this too much, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't agree to it. I couldn't put any more young men in that system. And this judge was an African-American, too. And he said he'd seen it, too, and he understood it. And so we worked out an arrangement where my young man did not have to be on probation, and he did not have to go to jail. But what that shows you is that even the judges whose eyes are open see it. The other thing that Angel asked me to talk about that I'd seen was even the way African-American attorneys, during the course of my 36 years in practice, were always initially treated in court. And, you know, I don't know if this happens as much in Harris County now. We have a more divergence and diversity in our judicial system now with both African-American and Hispanic judges. And I think that's an important point because, for one thing, they don't send young men to jail if they're a minute late. And in many occasions, they're not required to go to court every time, which is a needless requirement anyway. But even with the African-American attorneys, when they would first appear, they would have higher demands on them because the judges would initially not respect them as much. And I know that because I heard them make comments about them when they weren't around or when we, one of us had left or when one attorney or when I was there, but the court hearing hadn't started yet because the other attorney wasn't there yet. And they would make comments about it. And so, you know, even to this day, we have problems within the system of serious racism. I don't pretend to be any more enlightened than the next person. But I know what I've seen, and I know how I've had to deal with it in my evolution of how I practice law with young black men, and how I've had, if I was going to protect them, I had to keep them out of that system. And I know that I'm not the only one that's seen that because I've had at least that one judge that acknowledged it to me and helped me keep them out of the system. I want to thank Angel for letting me come on. And if there are any questions anyone wants to ask me, I would be glad to answer them through Angel. And if I'm hoping maybe in the future Angel will asked me to be on again. Hello everyone. Um, thank you again for joining us on our ongoing podcast series on Racism Revealed. A warm and a very special thanks 
to my friend Russell for joining us uh, and helping to shed light during his 36-year tenure as a lawyer here in Houston and in many surrounding counties throughout the state of Texas. Russell, your account of your experiences as a lawyer with these legal disparities in our criminal justice system is real. I know that through our many conversations long before we even began this podcast series on racism, you and I had often discussed some of the problems within our criminal justice system. So I want to thank you personally again for the work that you've done to help people, uh, but especially people of color. People of color are often made to suffer from these inequities of this harsh, uh, very calculated and deliberate criminal justice system that was, in fact, designed in yet another effort uh, to destroy African Americans and people of color by institutionalizing them and by breaking down the structures of their families. The real goal of this system was designed to remove people of color from their families, which caused grave harm to the families as they, African-American men, and uh, are often the backbone, the leaders, and the breadwinners in their families. And these harsh and unfair jail and prison sentences have caused African-Americans to lose their jobs to prevent them from getting new jobs once they were released from jail or prison. And this system also has kept them from the voting booths by creating laws that basically states that felons can't vote even after they've served the harsh and unfair prison sentences. So, Russell, I'm grateful to you for being able to open your eyes, uh, your naive eyes, um, and recognize that this brutal system has, um, has put a halt, and you've put a halt, in essence, at least from your perspective. And one perspective that's important uh, to stop contributing to this horrible and, and very destructive and divisive system. It is my hope that others will come to follow you. And um, as we work to stop these injustices. So I appreciate you, Russell, also for answering my question as it relates to other lawyers, specifically African-American lawyers, and how they're treated within the courts. It's not shocking or surprising to me in any way uh, that African-American lawyers are, are also discriminated against while well, in the performance of their professional duties as lawyers in our court systems. They too, I know, are subjected to white judges and African-American lawyers are often discounted. They're made to work harder and longer hours also. Uh, 
to prove up their cases. And they are sometimes regarded as lazy and they're not taken seriously or even respected by their white, white counterparts or white judges. In sharing your stories, I, I thought of an experience uh, that I once has had while working as a young African-American Houston police officer back in the early 90s. I recall an incident that, that actually shook me to my core one night while riding with a white male veteran Houston police officer who was one of my trainers. We'd received a call about a burglary of a habitation one night and my trainer and I discovered that a homeowner was holding a white male suspect in custody at his residence for breaking and entering his home. And upon arriving at the residence, my trainer instructed me to take a hold of the suspect and place him into custody and to run his criminal history. And I did that. When my trainer had finished gathering the required information from the homeowner, uh, he returned to the police vehicle. My trainer learned from the white male suspect that his dad was a high-ranking official within the Houston Police Department. As I worked to prepare the needed paperwork to place the suspect in jail, we drove to a nearby convenience store where my trainer advised me to remain inside the police vehicle with the white male suspect, to which I did. Uh, I thought my trainer perhaps wanted to get something cold to drink when we stopped at the convenience store. After a few short minutes in the convenience store, my trainer returned to the police car, never uttering a single word to me. And I did not see a cold drink in his hand. I said nothing. During our journey to book the white male prisoner into jail, I, I noticed that we were not driving in the direction of the local city jail. Instead, after a few more minutes of driving, we arrived at an unfamiliar residence. Upon arrival at this residence, I saw a white male standing outside at two o'clock in the morning in the driveway um, of what appeared to be his residence. And this white male had pajama bottoms and no shirt. My trainer stopped the patrol car and, and he instructed me to remove the handcuffs from the white male prisoner, the one that was sitting in the back seat of our patrol car that I had handcuffed and had arrested for burglarizing someone's home. I stared in question and in deep confusion as I looked at my trainer and I asked for clarification about the instructions that he had just given me. My trainer quickly reminded me and became slightly frustrated with me that I'm a rookie 
he said, and that my job was to follow his instructions as a senior officer in charge of the scene. So long as he was not putting my life or his life in any form of danger. Yeah, that's, that's policy. I concurred with him about the rules of the policy and so forth, and although fiercely grinding my teeth and taking a deep breath, I knew something was about to happen that shouldn't happen. So I, uh, I immediately exited the patrol car and opened the rear passenger's door, uh, the police car. I ordered the white male prisoner out of the car, gave him a second order to turn around, and I removed the handcuffs that I had initially placed on the suspect's wrists in preparation for our journey to jail. The suspect then walked over to the white male that was standing in the driveway with the pajamas, pajama bottoms and no shirt. And I realized that the prisoner and the white male who was standing in the driveway were related. I found out that the prisoner's father was a high-ranking official within the Houston Police Department. I witnessed the white, my white training police officer uh, speaking briefly with the, the prisoner's father about the incident. And I witnessed this white male high-ranking police official, um, strike his son in the head with an open hand. And he ordered his son into the house, and he said, uh, quote, I'm, I'm going to deal with you in the morning, end quote. So we, we left the residence, and never once did we book the white male burglary suspect into jail as required by law for committing the crime of burglary, which is a felony in the state of Texas. Nothing more was ever said about that incident. That incident. This was one of my first and early encounters with what racism, disparity, and white privilege looked like within the Houston Police Department. I felt horrible and helpless at that time. And I also knew that I was never to utter a single word about what had occurred. The life of this young white suspect was valued. His life was never destroyed the way that my friend Russell described how the lives of young African-Americans are often destroyed in our criminal justice system because they're never afforded to experience such a crime as this and be allowed to be turned over to their parent and go free. 
this white male suspect should have been sentenced to prison for the felony that he'd committed. I believe that he avoided prison, but that he will not avoid paying for the ultimate sin for which he committed that night. We must hold everyone accountable, regardless of their race, regardless of their prestige or their power. This white privilege is a part of a systemic culture that only within, not only within the Houston Police Department, but I sincerely believe that it's a culture that's very much in place in police departments all across this country. White people are often given the benefit, even when they commit serious crimes against humanity, as in this case. And they're often not subjected to the harsh, unfair, cruel, or, or to the destructive criminal justice system and other systems that are often experienced by people of color. One in every three African-American boys are expected to be sentenced to prison. One in every six Latino boys are sentenced and one in every 17 white boys are sentenced to prison. So that means that African-Americans are more than five times incarcerated than whites. And which, by the way, has absolutely nothing to do with the fact some people might say that, okay, blacks commit more crimes. That's not the case. African-Americans are held to a much higher standard of the law and are often confronted with, with a disparate application of the law. We have so much important and necessary work that needs to be done in our country to stop these racial divides and disparities that destroy some while allowing others to walk free because of their white skin. Let us bow our heads now as we pray for social justice and for peace in our world. Almighty God, source of true justice and peace, in you there is no distinction of persons, for in you we are all equally loved. Reconcile us that we may live and work with each other and with you to establish your kingdom on earth where there is no poverty, where there's no war, where there's no oppression, where there's no hate, and where there's only love. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. I want to thank you again, my friends, for joining us in our podcast series, and we look forward to you tuning in again next week, Monday, for podcast number six. And thank you again so much to my friend Russell for enlightening us. Until then, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, 
May God bless you, strengthen you, and keep you. Amen. This is the Reverend Hannah Elizabeth Atkins Romero, Rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Midtown Houston. Once again, thanking you for joining us for this podcast, thanking our wonderful co-hosts, Sheila Wainwright and Angel Williams. And I'm especially thankful for our truth teller this week, Russell Little. Thank you for your honesty and insight. I'd like to thank Tony Sessions for providing the music and our producer, Colin Boothby. If you're interested in other work that Trinity is doing, other ministries and other offerings, I invite you to look on our website at trinitymidtown.org. God's peace.